Good morning, everybody. Listen, uh, you have not lived until you have been in the waters of Hawaii early in the morning when the sun's coming up and the water is crystal clear and you're staring out at the waves and just wave after wave after wave is coming in and you're out there on your surfboard. You have not lived until you have experienced that. In the late 90s was my first trip to Hawaii. If I had gone there instead of going to Ocean City after high school, I would not stand, be standing on that stage right now. I tell you that story to say that I had gone to the airport in Kauai. Uh, I was sitting on a shuttle bus. I think they were going to take me back to the hotel that we were staying in. I'm on the bus all by myself. Uh, just minding my own business. The airport in Kauai is a very quiet, sleepy little airport. And all of a sudden, somebody who works at the airport just comes running. And boom, he comes on the bus like the whole bus jumps up and down. And he gets on and he looks right at me and then shakes his head in disgust, walks off. I didn't know what all that was about. And about 30 seconds later, the driver of the bus got on. He said, do you know why that guy just did that? I said, no. He said, well, the vice president, Al Gore, has been here. And that guy looked into the bus and he thought you were President Clinton. <laughs> and so when he realized it wasn't President Clinton, he just left. <laughs> I tell you that story because we have this story, the Gospel of John. Gospel, good news. There are four biographies of the life of Jesus Christ. This is John's version of it. He's writing to a Jewish audience, obvious. Some of them are followers of Jesus. Some of them are not followers of Jesus. It becomes really clear that he's talking to people um, who are Jewish because of the metaphors. There's so many metaphors, which we're going to talk about. We're going to be in this series. We're just going to slowly trek our way through it for the, about a year. And what he's saying is, is this. Maybe you have a correct version of Jesus. Maybe you understand Jesus' identity. I just want to make sure that if you're not following Jesus, that you are not following the right Jesus. Like there's all these messiahs. I just want to make sure that you haven't mistaken Jesus for somebody else, right? Jesus is not Bill Clinton. I'm not Bill Clinton. I just want to make sure that you got the right Jesus. That's why he's writing the book. And what he's saying here is this, because the book is so much, the biography is so much about life, like real life, like how to really live. And he's saying you can experience life like never before if you see Jesus like never before. Some people say, you know what? I tried Jesus. It didn't work for me. And what John would say back is, are you sure you tried the real Jesus? Are you sure you didn't mistake Jesus for somebody else? And so in this journey that we're on, we're just going to, he's going to just focus. He's going to focus in. So we're going to focus in. Who exactly is Jesus? What is the identity of Jesus? So we're like up on the mountains. We're taking a look at the big picture. Last week we said Jesus is radically relevant. He's air, he's bread, he's water. That's something relevant to all of our lives, right? And today we're talking about the fact that he's radically welcoming. Jesus is radically welcoming. He is the real thing. I want to read these two verses. We read them last week, but I want to read them again. There's something I really want to focus in on here about Jesus being radically welcoming. John chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. They are speaking to John the Baptist. So it says, find these officials, right? These like people sent to talk to John the Baptist. Finally, they said, who are you? Great question. Who are you? 
Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied, John the Baptist replied, In the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Straightway, highway, whatever you want to call it. What is this highway? What John is telling us right up front is Jesus is really into highways. What is a highway or what is a straightway? Well, it's just what you think it is. You know, when the king comes to town, you get all the debris out of the road, you fill in all the potholes, you make it nice and wide and clear like a big freeway, like a big highway, like the Autobahn. So you can go down really fast, unencumbered, nothing holding you back. Big. It's not a narrow country road. It's a big wide highway. So Jesus is really into highways. And John is saying, I'm a highway builder. I've come to build huge wide highway for God. Now, He's quoting Isaiah 40. And here's the thing that they would know. They would, because he's writing to a specific audience, a Jewish audience who's very well versed in the scriptures. And they would understand this is out of Isaiah. They'd also understand that seven times in the book of Isaiah, very important book, highways mentioned seven times. I want to talk about three of those times because they would understand all the highways kind of intermesh with each other. They wouldn't just think of one instant. They begin to think of all the instances. What is this highway we're talking about? What's highway? So in Isaiah 40 that he's quoting here, he's building a highway. Highway, highway for who? Well, of course, for God, what we already said. And I always thought about this. Okay, highway, highway for God. I need to get like the potholes cleaned up in my life so God can come. I need to get my act together. I need to get to the debris. And that makes sense. And yes, we should. But the highway's not just for God. In Isaiah 40, the highway is also for the exiles. Who are the exiles? People who've made terrible mistakes. I've made terrible mistakes. And when I make mistakes, I'm thinking like, ah, God doesn't want anything to do with me. That's the same way they feel. Maybe you've made a terrible mistake. Like, ah, gosh. God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. Doesn't want anything to do with me. I feel ashamed. I, 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 you know, like I bounce. God doesn't want to see me. We feel that way. It's a natural human reaction. So Isaiah 40 is saying, no, 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 no. You've made mistakes, but I want you to know I've built, I'm building a highway for you because I love you. I understand you make mistakes. You're human, but I want you back. I want you back. That's Isaiah 40. Isaiah 62, you find the highway again. And this time it takes it a step further. Because in Isaiah 62, it says, not is it just for God to come down? Not is it just this wide road so anybody and everybody who's made mistakes before can go down. But in Isaiah 62, it says, build a highway for all the nations. All the nations. Do you know what that means? That means people who are radically different than you. It means the people who are nothing like you, radically. So these people here are like... They're followers of God, the God of the Bible. They're followers of God. And God's saying, I need you to build it for not just followers of God who've made a mistake, but for people who don't know anything about God, people who have all kinds of beliefs that are radically different than you and behaviors that are radically different than you. And I need you to, I need you to go out and I need you to build a highway for them because I love them and I want them to come. And that's difficult to do. That's really difficult to do because it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to do something like that. I often get questions, you know, people you may want to call me, hey, you know what, I'm new to town, I heard about your church, I think about coming to your church, Uh, but first I just need to know, you know, everything that you guys believe, because if you don't believe just like I believe, uh, then I I can't come and be a part of your church. By the way, I want you to know I love diversity. (laughs) Two are in conflict. If you love diversity, it means you love diversity. It means you love diversity. And so... John is saying, Jesus loves highways. 
He's not building a narrow country road. He's building this wide highway for all people to travel down, even all the nations who are radically different. Now I want to read one other time for you. Well, I actually want to read these for you. Isaiah chapter 11, famous verses about the highway. And before you get to the highway, this is what it says. And you'll notice radically different things. The wolf will live with the lamb. Those two usually don't live together. In case you're not up on animals. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. I'm not sure that lions physically can actually eat straw. So there's something unusual there, right? The infant will play near the cobra's den. Who would let their child do that? And the young child will put his hand in the viper's nest. Who would let their kid do that? They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people. Two really important things. First of all, the highway. We're talking about this big wide highway and who this remnant. So when you hear remnant in the Bible, the Bible often speaks of this theme of a remnant. There's going to be a group of people who like will take up the mission of God. In this case, John the Baptist, he's saying, God, Jesus likes highways. What remnant, what small group of people will say, you know what, we'll do this. We'll take up the mission. We'll be highway builders for God. We'll build this wide thing. Not everybody's going to want to do it. Because why? Because something that's radically diverse is radically uncomfortable. I'll tell you right now how you can measure my love for my wife. This is easy. It's a piece of cake. How you measure my love for what? It's not how I treat her when we're like, everything is fine and we're getting along and our differences aren't really, you know what I'm saying? We're just kind of in sync. The way you measure my love for my wife is how I treat her when our differences kind of come to the top. Do you know what I'm saying? There's the measure of my love. So my wife has on her car, she has this van and you know, it has a little computer thing there, right? So when, when we're going down a hill in the van, I like to look at this. This just makes me feel, when we go down a hill, it says you're getting 99 miles to the gallon. Man, you just coast. I'm like, man, why can't we just coast down the hill all the time? I could drive for months. I'm not burning up any fuel at all. And then all of a sudden, you have to go up a hill. You know what it goes? It goes, you're getting five miles to the gallon going down. That's what it's like in your differences. You're burning up your love fuel. And the measure of your love is how you treat other people in the midst of your differences. And when you have people who are radically different than you, who believe different than you, who behave different than you, do you have enough love in your tank or is your tank empty? You're like, I'm out of here. Because most of the time, that's really what happens. Like, I'm out of here. I'm out of here from this community. I'm out of here from this person. Like, I've reached my limit. There's nothing, there's not even vapors of gas in my love tank anymore. It's just gone. I'm gone. I'm out of here. I'm done. And what we're being called to be, John says you should be famous for love. We're going to read about that. Not today. But he basically says, the movement of followers of Jesus Christ in the community should be famous for one thing above everything else. You should be famous for love. So a lot of love in the tank. That's why he says at the beginning in John chapter 1, I need you to build a highway, not a narrow country road, a highway for all people who are radically like you and unlike you. And it's going to take a lot, a lot of love in order to do that. Now, I tell you something else about Isaiah. This is a really important book. They were in a bad way. Like they had sinned, sinned, sinned greatly. Now you might say, John, how'd they sin? And the normal thing that you kind of look to is like, were they reading the Bible? Were they having their quiet time? 
Were they reading their Bible every day? Were they praying? Were they fasting? They were doing all that. They were worshiping God. They were singing praise to God. They were worshiping God. They were reading their Bible. They were praying. They were doing all that stuff. That wasn't their problem. Isaiah says it real clearly. Their issues were social justice. They were mistreating other people. That's why they were in the bad shape they were in, because they were mistreating other people. Now, I'd like to read you something from Genesis chapter 1, because this will help us to understand why they were in the situation that they were in. Genesis 1, famous verses, 26 and 27. Then God said, us, let, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the sky, over the livestock, the wild animals, and all over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created them. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. What is the image of God? People have written about that, thought about that, talked about that. What in the world is the image of God? The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, actually uses the word icon. Now, that helps us to understand something. So I'm going to take my phone out. Don't take your phone out. Because if you take your phone out, you know, all of a sudden you're going to start doing emails in text messages, and you might even do a phone call. So don't do it. Now, on mine, I have all of these icons. I have all these icons. And if I was smart, I would have, I would have tapped the weather icon today because I wouldn't be wearing a sweater, right? Because, whoa, it's hot. Who knew it was summertime? I would have clicked it. It would have said, it's going to be 85 degrees a day, and I wouldn't have worn a sweater. But I didn't do that. How do I relate to the weather app? I relate to the weather app by tapping the icon that is there. Now, we are told this in Genesis 1, really important. We're told that human beings are the icon of God. Jesus, right, to, not Jesus, God tells us in the book of Exodus, the famous Ten Commandments, commandment number two, don't make any images. In other words, don't make any icons. Why? Why shouldn't we make any icons? Because God says, I've already made the icon. You know who the icon is? It's the person sitting next to you. Do you want to experience the power of God? Do you want to relate to God? Do you want to connect with God? See, in Isaiah, they were worshiping God. They were praising God. They were fasting. Now, listen, you know you're serious when you're fasting. I'm talking to a buddy of mine who just moved to Colorado. He's going to a new church. The church at the beginning of the year, every year, they do a 21-day fast. Aren't you glad you're not going to that church? <laughs> right? 21-day fast. Fasting, you're serious. They were fasting in Isaiah. They're really serious about God. But they were mistreating other people. People like them. People radically unlike them. They're mistreating other people. And when you begin to understand, when I begin to understand that I connect with God, the power of God, I think, oh, God, I'm just, I'm just experiencing God. Oh, no, 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 no. You can't experience God according to this famous passage in the Bible and mistreat other people. You've got to be right with other people. And when you understand that, when you understand, all of a sudden, the pieces of the puzzle begin to fall into place. So Jesus tells this great story. He says, you know what? When you're at the altar, now, let me stop for just a second. When he says, when you're at the altar. So crowds and crowds, hundreds of thousands of people would show up to Jerusalem just a few different times a year, right? Passover being the biggest of them all. They would show up. They would come. And the lines would be like long. Like you had to stand in line for eight or nine hours to get to the altar to offer your gift to God. And he says, after you've stood in line for eight hours and you're the next person in line at the altar and you're getting to connect with me and you realize, oh my gosh, I have a broken relationship in my life. Jesus says, leave, 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 get out of line. You're like, Okay, I'll get a line right after I finish this thing because I want to be right with you. He's like, no, you, you have no use getting things right. You can't get things right with me unless you get right with the other person because that's how you connect with me. 
The person sitting next to you is the icon of God. That's why you're not commandment number two supposed to make another icon because the person sitting next to you is the icon of God. And the way we connect to other people, the way we connect to God is how we connect with other people. So now all of a sudden it starts to make sense. James chapter three, the brother of Jesus Christ. He says, you can't praise God and then curse other people who are made in the likeness, the icon of God. You can't do it. And how about this last one? This will jar you. First Peter. Peter writes, look, if you're not, if you're a husband and you're not treating your wife right, don't bother praying. I'm not interested in listening. Real quiet. <laughs> right? People would say to the Israelites, show me your God. They didn't have. They didn't have a God to show. Because God had already made the icon. It's us. It's how we relate. So we have to treat people radically like us and unlike us. Treat them in a different way. That's why Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay. I got one fill in the blank today. And that is we should immerse ourselves in the diversity of Jesus Christ. Diversity means diversity. It takes a lot of love. It's really uncomfortable to do. You know what? I'm comfortable. We're very tribal as human beings. We know this about ourselves, everybody. We know this, but God has called us to something else. He's called a remnant to build a highway that's really wide, not a narrow country road, but a wide, wide highway for all people, people like you and people radically unlike you. And it's incredibly uncomfortable. And the reason we tend not to do it is because it's uncomfortable, because it's messy and it stretches us. And anyway, shape, cut it. We all try to come back to this thing that's just like us. And so John is basically saying you can either feel good or you can follow God. Now, that's not to say, that's not to say that following God, you don't feel good sometimes. But if you want to create a narrow country road, you're probably going to feel good all the time about the people you're around. But if you are on this highway, then it's going to be a massive challenge for you. And God is calling people to be highway builders for him. The amazing thing about Jesus Christ is Jesus consistently challenges insiders. In this case, we'll say Jesus consistently challenges the churchgoer, the person who's bought into Jesus. He challenges them. People say to me, John, all the time, John, why don't you challenge, why don't you challenge people that, who don't believe in God and don't follow Jesus and they're doing all this sin in their life? Why don't you challenge them more? I'm like, man, I really want to. I'd like to, but the problem is with Jesus. I keep coming back to him. He's always challenging the insider. He's welcoming the outside, challenging the insider. Why is he doing that? I don't know. I, we should change him. <laughs> He's very frustrating that way. There's this famous story, the prodigal son. We name it. If you look in your Bible, it's in Luke 15. It'll probably say, it'll title that pericope as the prodigal son. It'll title it prodigal son. It's not about the prodigal son. The point of the whole story, if you read the entire chapter, is about the inside older brother. Jesus is always challenging the insider and welcoming the outsider, and it's freaking everybody out. People say, John, you need to talk about sin more, and you need to tell people who are on the outside and challenging them, and the problem is with Jesus. He's just welcoming. He's challenging the insider, and he's welcoming the outsider, and that is really troubling. That's extremely uncomfortable. I don't like it, you don't like it, but here we are. That's who Jesus is, and that's who John is presenting. We can either feel good or we can follow God. 
One of the things we get ticked off about is the same thing the inside older brother did in Luke chapter 15. He's like, well, you know, my younger brother, he went out, riotous living, whatever that means. And he just, just did it up. He did it like crazy. And then his father just welcomes him back. And he's like, what are you doing, dad? You can't just do that. And this is something I, people say to me all the time. People say to me, I've been in church all my life and I've given up so much stuff. And you got to make these people give up stuff too. Right? That's the way we think. Billy Graham has a really great quote. He said, it's the Holy Spirit's, Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, my job to love. That's Billy Graham. So it's got to be straight from the mouth of God, right? <laughs> All right. I, I feel like it's really important that in this series we give context. We give, we give first century Jewish context. If we have any hopes, everybody, of understanding this amazing letter and experiencing life like never before by seeing Jesus like never before, we need to understand what is going on in the Hebrew context in the first century because they did not think the same way you and I think. They did not approach things the same way. And I'd like to point that out if I can right now. If you, if you went to a seminary here in the United States of America this year, 2020, if you went to a seminary, you say, hey, seminarian, please tell me what is God or who is God? Describe God for me. You'd get something like this. This is what you get. God is omnipotent. Omnipotent, he's all-powerful. That's who God is. He's all-powerful. Great. If you went in the first century, right, when Jesus is walking the earth, you went to us you went to us after he... He's gone, he's raised from the dead, he's gone, right? And you go to seminary and you say, okay, describe God. You know what they would say? They would say, God is freshly baked bread. I'm going to show you something. I got this. Fresh, this is freshly baked. This bread right here. Now, it smells great. There's nothing like freshly baked bread. Now, if you go to somebody who is not interested in church, they think church is irrelevant, They've been hurt by church, bored by church, burned by church, whatever. They think that church is foolish and they have no time for God, like most people in the United States of America, right? Okay? And you say, I just want you to know God is omnipotent. Oh, gosh, that makes me feel so good. Could you tell me more about this omnipotent God? Now, if you go to somebody, smells so good, and you say, God is freshly baked bread. That's the way John describes God. That's a big, I know, you're excited too, all right? That's a big difference. That's a whole different feeling, which is what they're after. This is the way they thought about it. God is freshly baked bread. And you know when I was thinking about this? This is wonderful, this is powerful, and everybody likes, everybody just, I think a couple years ago we did this thing where we like sprayed the smell of freshly baked bread all over this place because it, it just makes you feel good. And it got me to thinking, it got me to thinking about this. I want to show you something else I got here. And we have a, we have a couple boxes for the, like the next 20 seconds. Not everybody's going to get one, but if somebody would like a donut, we are going to share a donut with you. We can't give donuts to everybody, but we'd like to share some with you, okay? And I'm going to hold my donut up here. Uh, I have less than a dozen because I ate one in between services. Really good. There is nothing like the Krispy Kreme donut. For those of you who are getting, don't eat it yet. Don't eat it yet. Don't eat it. Don't eat it yet. You are going to eat it. You are going to eat it. But I want you to just take a second before you bite into it. And could you just... Could you just smell it? Oh, man. I want to tell you something. So uh, the guy who, owns, who owned Krispy Kreme, right, no longer with us, uh, he was a businessman from North Carolina, and he went down to New Orleans, and he bought this recipe for the Krispy Kreme donut from a French 
pastry chef in New Orleans. He came back to Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He started making the Krispy Kreme donuts and he would sell them to grocery stores. And you know what happened in his community? People started... Now, those of you who don't have the donut, just take a look at the person that does somewhere around there. (laughs) Take a look at the person who does. Don't you want some of that donut? And so what would happen in that community? They would just beg, let me in that. Let me in that warehouse. I got to have some of those donuts. And the guy that owned Krispy Kreme, he was just a wild guy. He took a sledgehammer, knocked a hole in the cinder block, and just started selling it right outside the warehouse because people demanded it. Now, here's my question. Here's my question to you. If you are following the true Jesus and not an imposter, then you are a baker and you're making donuts. You're making freshly baked bread that it doesn't matter who it is, where it is, whatever. People are just saying, I got to have that. Now you can say God is omnipotent or you can do what the gospel of John says. And you can say, I want to tell you about the God of freshly baked bread. I want to tell you about a God who makes donuts. I want to tell you about a God who loves you and is building a highway for you, welcoming you in. Now it's scary, but I want to, I want to, I want to challenge church people for just a second. It's okay perfect love cast out fear don't be afraid but john if all kinds of people start coming in what's what's going to happen they got all kinds of belief if you don't like tell them right at the door get the sin out of your life you're i'm gonna tell you if you're a church person could you believe in the power of the holy spirit can you believe a little bit more in the power of the spirit to transform lives or what billy graham says who says it far better than i ever would that's the holy spirit's job to convict and change and transform and all that kind of stuff and leave that to god and your job is to love This is what we're called to do. We're called to be highway builders. We are called, we are called to bake freshly, freshly baked bread. Now, uh, you know, one of the most common things, I do it too. You're going to say, oh, you're saying it's bad? No, I'm going to tell you, I would do it too. I'm, I'm just like you. I was birthed on a pew. If you're a church person, I've been in church my whole life. If I'm going to a church for the first time, here's what I do. I go to the beliefs page. Go, what do you believe? Well, make sure your beliefs are right. I just want you to know in the first century, if they had websites back then, they would not go to the beliefs page. Hmm, they wouldn't. They wouldn't. Not interested. Not interested in your beliefs. We're really interested. In the United States of America, you better get, to, I, I just want to make sure your beliefs are right. I want to see it on the page. Show me your beliefs are right. What they're interested in, they want to know if they come to your gathering of followers of Jesus Christ, will they experience freshly baked bread? That's what they wanted to know. And I need you all to know this. There's a massive difference between omnipotence and freshly baked bread. Are you following the Jesus that John is talking about? Because this is the Jesus that John is talking about. And this is how a revolution started against all odds 2,000 years ago that turned the world absolutely upside down. It's not going to happen any other way. This is how it happened before. This is God's plan. This is God's way. It's not going to happen any other way. Us standing up and saying, you got this and all that kind of stuff, never going to happen. What is going to happen is when the church is famous for love because the church has made a big, huge, wide, massive highway for all people to travel down. That's how it happens. Let's talk about revival for a second because church folk are always interested in revival. If you're a non-church goer, and I'm sure you are, 40% of our, our, our community here self-classifies as a non-church goer. Uh, you're either an atheist, atheist or an agnostic, or you're just here checking it out. You've been burned by church, bored by church. You haven't been to church in a long time, whatever. I'm going to talk to the rest of the 60% of you that classify as a church goer. We're really into revivals. We want to see a revival happen. 
The last big revival we had in the United States of America took place in the late 60s, early 70s. It's called the Jesus People Movement. It happened a bunch of, a bunch of hippies who getting, were getting high on LSD and pot. And all of a sudden, they showed up at a little Baptist church in San Francisco and started talking about Jesus. And I remember sharing this story with a church person about five or six years ago. And man, it swept the nation. I mean, my gosh, people who had no, here's what a revival is. When people who have no interest whatsoever, all of a sudden have a massive interest in God. When people who have no interest in God, all of a sudden they realize Krispy Kreme donuts and they started pounding on the door to let God in, you know, you're in the midst of revival. And so these people got into, I mean, man, it was incredible. Time magazine cover story in the 1970s, the Jesus people movement. It swept across this nation. That was a revival. And I remember talking to this person and talking about all the incredible things that happened. And they sat there looking, looking, looking with kind of a puzzled look on their face. They had one question for me. They said, now, tell me this. Here's my one question. They stopped getting high, right? (laughs) So that's where you know that somebody has no understanding of who Jesus Christ is at all. If that's your first question back. You're so nervous. You You so are scared that the power of the spirit is so limited that can't transform a life that you got to make sure you do it yourself. So they told me about their own revival because the church that uh, they still kind of go to, it's a big, huge church, big, huge church. They said, well, I'm experiencing a revival right now at my church. I said, you are? What's, tell, me what, tell me what's happening. He says, man, we're just growing by leaps and bounds. We like doubled. We're, we're a church of thousands and now we're a church of tens of thousands. We're just huge. Oh, that's awesome. You know what I found out? I found out that the church right down the street from that big, massive church, another big, massive church had a character issue. They had a meltdown and thousands of people from this church came over to this church. That's not a revival. Okay, everybody, almost 90% of church growth in the United States of America is attributed to Christians changing churches. Almost 90%. Al Mohler, who is considered one of the leading uh, Christian influencers in America, says the Christian church in the United States of America, basically, almost on a regular basis, the only thing we're doing is baptizing our own children. You know what that means? It means we're not really reaching the nations. We're just reaching people who are already somehow related to the church in some shape or fashion. So two people, they have a child and they baptize the child or somehow there's some kind of connection, but we're really not reaching the nations at all. 27% of young professionals in the United States of America believe the Bible is a dangerous book. I didn't say 27% of young professionals think it's boring or irrelevant. I said 27% think that we ought to get rid of the Bible because it's a dangerous book. It's dangerous. Andy Stanley says the church in the United States of America has responded with skinny jeans and moving lights. I had a con- I didn't have a conversation, but I had a conversation with somebody who had a conversation with another person who some time ago used to come to grace. If you can follow that. <laughs> and this person was really confused. They said, I don't understand at Grace Community Church when the music starts right at the start of the, why doesn't the entire church run in and put their hands up and start worshiping Jesus? There should be massive energy and everybody should throw their hands up and think. And I, when they told me that, I thought, oh my gosh, I've done a really terrible job. Everybody, I want to say it again. I said it many times, but can I be really, really clear? Almost 40% of this room does not believe in Jesus. Of course, people aren't going to run and throw their hands up. We're trying to build a highway here. We're not building a club. What's comfortable is for me to get together. What's comfortable me to get together with a bunch of other church people and just hang out and feel good 
and challenge the outsiders and make all you insiders feel good about yourself. The problem is that's not what Jesus did. We have a massive problem. We spend tens of millions of dollars as churches in the United States of America. And 90% of church growth is Christian changing churches. I'm going to go to the next cool church where there's ripped jeans and tattoos. But it's just a church. We're not reaching any new people. So God is saying here to us, I need some people to build a highway. I need a remnant who will build a highway. I need some people who have enough love in their heart that they can build a highway for people who are radically different than them who can become famous for love, who are known as the followers of Jesus Christ who are offering freshly baked bread. Do you know why Christian denominational experts want to plant churches all the time? You know why that's happening? There's a massive church planning movement that's been going on in America for the last 15 years. You know why? Because in the first five years of a life of a church, in the first five years, that church is eight times more effective at reaching people who have never been to church before. Because as much as 40% 40 of those people in the first five years will self-classify as a non-church score. They they don't go to church. They're totally disconnected. All right. But after year five, something happens. Same thing that happens. We're human beings. That church goes from 40% self-classifying as a non-church goer. By year 10, there's less than 5%. And this morning in the United States of America, the typical church in the United States of America, 5% or less of the people, even in the cool churches, even with the ripped jeans and all the tattoos, 5% or less self-classify as non-church goer. And that's why Al Mohler says we're just simply baptizing our children. Grace Community Church to this day is almost at 40% that self-classify. And it's not because we're special. But we're trying to be clear about this great mission. It's found in Matthew 28. I want you to think about this. How much time do I have? Okay, I'm almost done. Jesus Christ has spent three years with his disciples. Three years. He's taught. He's healed. He's poured himself into them. He dies on a cross. He's resurrected. And then for 40 days, he hangs out with his disciples. And right before he goes to heaven, he looks them dead in the eye in Matthew 28 and says, okay, I have a great mission for you. I want you to go to all the nations. I want you to get out of Jerusalem and go out to people who are radically there. It's going to make you really uncomfortable but I would rather you follow me than just try to feel good. I need you to get out of Jerusalem. And Jesus Christ looked me in the eye and said that. And you know what they did? They didn't go anywhere. They didn't go anywhere. Seven or eight years later, finally, because a guy by the name of Stephen gets martyred, he gets stoned, he gets killed. Because of that persecution, they're scattered all over the world because of that. But they were so bought in to just being a club that it took that what God is asking of us in John chapter 1 is what he's asking every one of his movements is that we build a highway that we become bakers making freshly baked bread that we become famous for love that we're willing to take the messiness look at either end of the extreme of where you are your position there's no mess anywhere and where you find Jesus is right here in the middle and it's always messy But you can trust Jesus with that mess. This is what he is calling us to do, is to follow him, to be highway makers for him. Last thing, Acts chapter 15, 
the most important council the church has ever had. It's not the council of Nicaea. It's not the council of Constantinople. It's not that one. The most important council the church has ever had in its entire history happened in Acts chapter 15. It's called the Jerusalem council. And they had all these people coming and flocking. Oh man, they had all kinds of beliefs and all kinds of behavior. It was total chaos. Jesus loved every second of it. And they concluded this statement, Acts 15, we should not make it difficult for people who are turning to God. Followers of Jesus Christ are not supposed to build a small country road where it's difficult to pass. We're supposed to build a 10-lane highway for lots of people to come down. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. I know it's challenging, God, but it's the only way to follow you because that's the way you're going. God, give us the courage to follow you so we can finally experience all this life that you're talking about in the Gospel of John to the max. In Jesus' name, amen.